Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bond Daft Podcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by my usual Bond aficionados for a remotely recorded podcast. Fran Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. Steve McCall. A very good afternoon slash evening to you all. And same to you. And last but not least, Gordon Webster. Good evening, Mr. Barry. <laughs> How are we all today? How is our third or fourth week in isolation? How are we all coping? Fran, we'll start with you. Um, I don't know. I just got used to it now, to be honest. It's like I've got it's the new routine, I think, after so long. Like, because I had that extra week beforehand as well. Like, it's got to the yeah. point where, like, you go past the crazy part of it. It's just what you're going to do. What you, yep. you know, you'd. Um, playing online games is quite good. I've been playing a bit of Star Trek online. Like, talk. I've got this bunch of guys from the states that I talk to, um, and they're on at all different hours. So, and you're doing something. You're you're actually kind of doing something there, like team matches and various different things. So that there's stuff going on. I've done group chats with family. There's been like folk from London that I haven't spoke to for a while that were doing like like cards against humanity and things like that. So just. I've actually probably socialised more in the past week. I was, I was just a bit joke. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, in terms of, like, reconnecting with people and talking to people I haven't spoken to for a long time, I've probably socialised more doing this than, than I usually would. <laughs> but I do, like, I, like this poignant stuff, like, I've, get, I've been getting picture messages from, like, my sister. Like, they've got the, the tape, like, the dining room table all set up for having Easter meal and all that, and everybody's there. Like in that house, so my mum and dad, my sister, and my niece are there. There's just no way to go, you know. Like, so there's 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 good and bad. Definitely, yeah. Steve, how are you doing? I'm quite enjoying lockdown, to be honest. It's quite. I'm liking the sort of chilled out nature. Uh, the fact there's not very many people about. There's a slight irony in the fact that this has been one of the nicest in terms of weather. It's like one of the hottest weeks of the year so far, and yeah. nobody can get out to enjoy it. But yeah, yeah I'm moving along for the first time in about six months. Uh, I've been sat outside. I've been drinking a lot. There's something about lockdown <laughs> and hot weather that it's, immediately makes yeah. the brain go, I fancy a beer. Not in an unhealthy way. Drink responsibly, kids. But it's, it's quite <laughs> a nice way. I mean, I've not, I've not really been working this week, which is possibly why I've been enjoying it. Uh, whereas I've got an absolute killer week this week. So next time we speak, my opinions may have changed and I'll want an end to it all. But okay. for the time being, I'm quite into this. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can see that. I I think it's a Scottish mentality of as a wee bit of sun out, outside. Let's get the can open. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. maybe. Uh, Gordon, how about you? How are you doing? I th- I thought in case it gets forgotten, <laughs> I thought check check how you're doing. You know, um, first just a politeness. Oh, myself. Yeah, just in case we forget, oh, well. we should check what you're doing. I thought you know what I mean. Oh, well, that's very kind of you, Gordon. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, similar to Steve, I have found opportunities where suddenly a, a wee cheeky can is being opened more. Yeah, I'm, I'm watching films uh, with my girlfriend and playing playing computer games, completed Resident Evil 3, which is fantastic, and that was very immersive. Although, playing during a pandemic, when you're playing a game focused on uh, a pandemic which has led to zombies <laughs> and uh, essentially the city having to be nuked uh, because of that, it's a bit it's a bit of a weird weird position to be in. It feels like the extremes of what, what if, you, if you could imagine the science fiction version of where this all goes. Uh, editing podcasts, that's another thing. Sorry, Fran, what were we going to say? 
I was going to say, like when you were talking about your idea of like where this could all go, I think we should do a one-off special podcast on the film Contagion. I haven't seen it. I think that'd be a fantastic one to do. Like it's just a one-off for the four of us to look at that movie. Um, I'd say that's like I, I went to see that with an ex-girlfriend of mine when it came out. I think it was 2011 or something like that, or something around that time. And I remember coming out, but like we came out of it and we were sort of just walking around Norwich at the time and just being like, God, like, imagine that really, like, imagine it happened. And it's very similar to this. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's extremely similar. Um, like, I, th- I think it would be an amazing one to do. Okay. Uh, well, uh, well we should have a list of things that we've project ideas in mind. I think we should try and start writing up a wee list of things we want to do because the way we're going with these Bond podcasts, we might be finished a lot sooner than we thought. <laughs> the weekly schedule is is helping yeah. the, the project, which is, is good That's and true. bad. I'll be sad when it's over. So yeah, essentially I've just been doing that and the odd cycling, which has been good to get on my bike. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm weirdly enjoying it. I, I do say that knowing what's going on in the world to it's not great for everyone but um i've found a way to 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 enjoy it i like my creature comfort so that side of it has been fine for me gordon how are you doing sorry i was concerned you were going to get forgotten about yeah i'm doing fine i've still been working i've started working from home tried to have a bit of music on even the odd movie on in the background and yeah watching a few movies a few classics i had on i had on ghosts yesterday with Patrick Swayze, which was quite fun. I had Groundhog oh, yeah. Day, which is quite an appropriate one at the moment. It's a great film. Yeah, I forgot how good it was. And yeah, I had Bill Murray classic. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I like, I like watching eclectic mixture of films. Um, yeah, been, it's a shame about the weather. We can't all get out. Trying to have the odd nice walk. Yesterday was a exciting day. I had a, a walk. Saw a couple of freshwater <laughs> eels. A really exciting day then. But yeah. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's nothing, nothing. It's been quite nice having the the nice weather. Actually, um, I was sitting in my garden reading my. I've got like a backlog of Empire magazines. The reason I've not been reading my Bond books is because I, in my head I was like, I need to really catch up my Empire magazines first, then go through the Bond books. So now I'm uh, working my way through my Empire magazines. So I was just sitting yesterday out in the sun, just reading Empire, and I was actually worried for a second that I was going to get sunburnt, which is. Uh, I mean, that's just me. <laughs> but yeah, so nice to have some nice weather, considering the rain we got in February. I have yeah. to say, you do look incredibly young with your clean-shaven look. It's, 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 it's kind of disconcerting. It's taken years off you, yeah. It's, sort of like, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like talking to Stephen Barry from the high school days. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's weird. I actually catch myself in the mirror sometimes. Like, whoa, whoa, what the hell? <laughs> It's like an inverse thing where everyone else is growing beards during this pandemic and using it as a chance to grow some facial hair where I decided to get rid of the the, the beard that made me look like a lighthouse keeper. So, uh... <laughs> Have you seen that thing where people are shaving their heads? Like they're, they're fashion? Have any well, the, of you thought about doing that? The best one was, uh, what's his name? The comedian, Kevin Bridges. Did you see that? That's been passed around. No, I've not seen I've that. I've not seen that. Oh, you got it. Right, check search for it. Uh, it what he did was he first tried his own haircut and the haircut went so badly that he was getting trolled <laughs> and he was like I'll just need to shave it off and now he's got a proper like one on his hair like the, the haircut he initially had was so bad it was like shaved at a one everywhere else but he kept the fringe and it looks terrible <laughs> or it looked terrible it's gone now I'm starting to notice people uh, whose hair you probably wouldn't have thought was dyed you suddenly see people with different coloured hair emerging it's it's kind of weird yeah I never well I've, I've yeah I've, if you're gonna get like over the past 
little while, like at the back of my head, like here, like, on the crown, like I'm starting to lose my hair. Like it's started to happen. Really? Uh, yeah, it's getting thinner and thinner. Like, and at the temples, that's happened for a while, but certainly at the back. So it may be that at some point I'm going to have to tran- like transition over to having a, a extremely short haircut. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> I told Steve through the WhatsApp the other day you should go full on Blofeld and not just take your beard off, just shave your head completely. Be like, be like, tell us of Alice of the Donald Pleasance Blofeld tunic as well. Have, yeah, I've, you know, I might do that as a new like dating thing, like for going out dating. I'll, I'll shave my head completely, be clean shaven, and just wear a tunic and see if I can attract some like <laughs> girls who love Bond. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> they might just well, um, in the films so. I think I said, I'd, I'd, I'd put on a profile, I'd be like, if it doesn't work out, I'm going to send you to die in the woods with dogs eating you. <laughs> there's, va- there's various exit strategies. So yeah. uh, at this point, I should probably um, mention that we are here to talk about the living daylights. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, we're here to do, uh, this is an episode of the Bond Daft podcast. I must have mentioned that surely, I think at the beginning. The Living Daylights, back on track. We uh, hear, this is what, I think, is this the 15th Bond film? Am I right, Gordon? I think it is. No, I think I'm certain it is. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. I never think of them in terms of numbers, but, um, man, we're fairly firing through them now. And Timmy D time, like I was saying, I, I couldn't wait to get onto Dalton. <laughs> Timmy especially- D. Yeah, <laughs> Timothy Dalton. He's so I'm not necessarily saying he's my favourite. A wee while since I've seen one of his films, but I'm proper excited about getting onto these two films. Yeah, this is uh, these are these are highly regarded, aren't they? Um, this feels like a shift in the Bond series with this with this film, particularly going with a more serious style, moving away from the light-hearted flippancy of the Roger Moore films. It is. It's almost like um, a proto-Daniel Craig. Like it, yeah. it, it, It's kind of like the first time they tried to do that. And then they dialed back with Piers Brosnan and then they, they finally got it right with Daniel Craig in the, the sense of like making a serious Bond. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like I think we're going to see that as we go on. Like We're going to appreciate the artist, like the artistry of what's go- going into some of the later Bond films. Like Especially, like, we're going to start seeing that with Timothy Dalton. And then we're going to lose it with Pierce Brosnan, but I mean, I, like, I know we're, we're skipping ahead a bit, but I'm looking forward to Dalton because it reminds me of like Casino Royale, which I think is one of the best movies ever. Not just a, a, a good Bond film, but like it's up there as one of the kind of like I put it in like a top twenty five movies list kind of thing. Like you've got some genre films that fit into top twenty five lists, like Star Trek Two, you've got like uh, Empire Strikes Back, Casino Royale, that kind of thing. Like that's the kind of yeah, like they transcend the series, the franchise into the actual just pure films. They uh-huh. are some of the yeah. best. Yeah, yeah. So like, but none of the rest of them are really there. Like, you'd have to be a fan. But I think Timothy Dalton's era, you're going to see a lot of things that are paid off in Daniel Craig era, like the the yeah. final payoff of that tone. And and I love Timothy Dalton. And the thing about Timothy Dalton is that he's someone who plays like as he got older, he plays a better villain. Like he's got that dark edge to him. Yeah. Like, He's younger and like kind of handsome and charming. He can do it, but like later on in his career, he moves into the kind of more sinister, villainous type roles. Uh, you know, he's got that edge. He's got a real edge to him. And he's a great actor as well. Yeah, I mean, so many people have said out of all the actors that played Double Seven, he was the best actual actor, and he was kind of uh, uh he was more of a theatre actor. All that and the the manner of his voice. 
and it, it can sound a, a little bit kind of North Wales at times. You'll see as a couple of bits his accent really comes out. But he one of the things that I, I really like about him is he really studied the Bond books, the original Fleming novels, and he really tried to hone the Bond out of the books and bring that back. Similar, I admire how Roger Moore brought his own version of Bond because he deliberately tried not to emulate Connery. And I suppose you could say Lazenby. And Dalton did the same thing, but he um, is probably the closest, him or Craig are probably the closest to the Bond in the books. The, the, some of the dark and like contradicting elements of his character, some of his weaknesses, that's, that's something that I think he did really well. And of course, he wasn't originally going to be in this film. This film, by the way, and it was 87 it was made, it was pretty much tailored around Pierce Brosnan taking the role because Brosnan actually took the job, he got it, and then he was working as the lead role in Remington Steel, the series at the time, and because of some last-minute clause in the contract when they heard he was doing Bond, they like reined him in to do another series of Remington Steel because of legal complications. He, he did that at Broccoli and, the, and Michael Wilson and Eon, they lost, so they then turned to Dalton, and Dalton had actually been asked at least once in the past support as legend goes to to play bond right back when apparently when they did on her majesty's secret service and he was so young at the time i think he was in his 20s and he he turned it down for those reasons it's funny that i was reading about it he had to be convinced to do it you know you imagine a young actor i mean maybe not young so much maybe yeah having to be convinced to play a lead in a franchise yeah. that's yeah. going to make you millions. But the thing like is, James Bond to be convinced, and he turned he turned them down initially. It's not, it's not just that though. It's like when you're getting towards the kind of eighties into the nineties, a lot of younger actors realised like they heard things from people like um, Sean Connery or Leonard Nimoy in Star Trek, or like various other genre actors, um, like um, Mark Hamill in Star Wars, like. Like some actors managed to get out of that, but there are a lot of actors who were probably cautious about being typecast. Like probably the, the, the fear was that he would suddenly be like that would be it. Like people would just see him as James Bond, and then he wouldn't be able to get another a different kind of role. Do you know what I mean? And, and oh no, yeah, I understand. Yeah, theatre actors for your proper thespians because like Shatner never cared about that so much. Although he did do Shakespearean stuff when he was younger, but Nimoy, like Leonard Nimoy from Star Trek, um, really suffered from that. Like he really suffered from, because uh, he was a. I mean, you can tell when you look at um, the performance of Spock in Star Trek. That is a great actor. That is a, an incredible, uh, like a, a, an actor that's a cut above almost everybody else. But he was typecast, and I think a lot of people will look at that and be like, "My God, like, do I really want to be associated with one thing for the entirety of my career? Like, never get a chance to do anything else. Never get a chance to play a villain. Never get a chance to play e- even like a comedic character. Like, just." just nothing outside what what they've been seen yeah. as by the public. And the thing is, James Bond is so massive and so famous and so kind of iconic that, I mean, Roger Moore is Bond and Bond is Roger Moore. Roger Moore could never do anything else after that. Uh, yeah, that's true. I also don't think he was, he wasn't bothered by it. He was so late into yeah. his career by taking Bond at that point. Yeah. I think he was, he was completely embraced it. I think he knew himself that that was really his, that was going to be his, his tombstone like uh-huh. thing. Um, so he my... it didn't bother him, but I th- maybe you're right. I think with Timothy Dalton, he could see beyond Bond and he could see that he wanted more 
than just yeah. Bond. That's the thing. Like, I think that's why the age comes in. Like, I don't think an actor's going to bother about taking on Bond when they're thirty-five or forty. Like, that's that's probably like they've already had a chance to do some things by then. So, like, if you're thirty between thirty-five and forty as an actor, you might be like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do Bond at this age. You know, whereas if you're twenty to twenty-five, you're wiping out later like opportunities. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. Don't be stuck with it for life. Yeah, plus I think like being 35 to 40, you're still young enough. Like I think Bond kind of has to be that little bit older. Um, oh, certainly, yeah. Like to have to be taken seriously like in the yeah. movies because I, like you can be too old as Bond, but you can also be too young. Like a, a young 20s guy, early 20s, would never fly as Bond, I don't think. Never. Yeah, no, someone who's obviously had experience, life experience. Yeah, like uh, us. I mean, we don't know all the stuff that Bond supposedly does. I oh mean, no, speak, no, we terrible bonds. No, we'd we'd be great. We'd be the ethical bond. <laughs> we'd we'd be a different type of James Bond. I think. After all these bonds. we would all be a we would, after all these reviews, we would all each be a perfect amalgamation of all the actors to play Bond. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would say I'm um, not to take anything away. It's worth when we watch this film, like try and imagine Pierce or I try and imagine how Pierce Brosnan would fit it in because this the film you can you can see I've found in reflection is tailored around him being in it, but I think they had to change certain things once Dalton. But Dalton got involved later on in production. That's the thing. So there wasn't much that was changed. The story and everything was all written. What is it about Brosnan that? What would you say is what makes something a Brosnan tailored to Brosnan? I find as much as I love I love Golden Eye as I've said many times, and the other films are okay. Uh, varying degrees but what is it that makes Bro- he's a he's the hardest to pinpoint isn't he in terms of his style well brosnan was like goldeneye was the best of his run there's no doubt about yeah. it um but that's because it had the edge to it and fantastic action sequences and there was real kind of stakes and there villains as well supporting yeah supporting characters villains that kind of thing but brosnan like if you look at um is it is it tomorrow never dies? There's a, a scene in that where he, he murders someone in front of him, like a, a a woman. He shoots her right through the heart. Do you know what I mean? So there's there's a, a Brosnan's got his edge as well. There's no doubt about it. Like the scripts and like the way that Brosnan is as a, a personality and as an actor, like there's an edge there definitely. But like that it ended up like like do you know we're talking about the like in the previous films where we're saying there was too much of a leap between bits with like that um, Pepper, the police officer, too much comedy, the slide whistle thing, and then you're going into serious stuff. It got a bit like that with Brosnan. Yeah. It's like going between really daft gadgets and whatever, and then like suddenly incredibly dark. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to Living Daylights. Uh, we're, we're probably going to have to uh, put the film on soon. So yeah, Gordon, you, uh, you're usually good with setting us up with the set setup of the film. You want to Gonna go from there. Yeah. Uh, so the quick rundown of the cast: Mariam Diabo, who was actually an English actress, plays Kara Malovi. I think she's maybe maybe Russian or Czechoslovakian. We've got Jerome Crab as Yorgi Kozkov, and Joe Don Baker, who we'll later know as Jack Wade out of Goldeneye. He plays Brad Whitaker, and I think about forty million dollars was the budget for this one which obviously inflation that's quite a bit up from some of our recent ones so the plot it's one of these classic nothing is what it seems plots so without giving too much away it, it does it is still during the cold war and involves the kgb and 
it really involves a conspiracy theory and the supposedly Russia are targeting British agents for assassination as part of some sort of death to spies program and and double sevens get sent out to to stop it basically. But it's one of these things Bond doesn't quite believe it. And we've we've seen that before, haven't we? Especially involving the KGB. It looks as though the KGB or Russia are pulling the strings, but there's something else going on that gradually comes out. So it's it's nothing I always remember it's it's one of the more realistic ones, again, without giving too much away. And oh and also, sorry, it was this was the last one, I think, to until Casino Royale many years later to not be taken sorry, to be taken from a novel. It was but it was from one of the short stories. So the one of the collection of short stories we mentioned, which included Octopussy, for example, there was also The Living Daylights and that whole that whole short story is basically a big lengthy scene in this involving a Bond protecting uh a KGB officer from um, helping him to defect and basically protecting him while he defects. And yeah. and the in the short story that was meant to take place in in Berlin when there was the the divide between East and West Berlin. Uh, but in this, I think it's in in Bratislava. All right then. Uh, this is obviously directed uh, for the fourth time. Uh, John Glenn. Uh, who previously edited the film. So he's actually been with the film since, uh, is it On Her Majesty's Secret Service was his first one he edited. He's kind of been with the franchise for quite some time now, from the 60s, late 69. So he's obviously fourth directed film. And yeah, this will be the, the first time we've got a new Money Penny as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this film. This is a film I've seen as a child growing up when my when my first got into Bond. I had this one on VHS and watched it quite a lot. It's been a while since so I do forget a lot of it, but I remember enjoying this one. Really like this one. Uh, Steve, have you seen this one? No, once again, I'm kind of going into this completely blind, deliberately I've got to say. I like to kind of keep myself away from the film we're about to see as we're approaching it so that I can nah. kind of approach it with completely fresh eyes. So this... Uh, should be completely new to me. Excellent. Uh, yeah, it's Brad, also yeah. the last one to have a John Barry score. This was his last film. I don't know how he made that. Must be at least ten. So he's been basically involved since Doctor No, but he's been doing the full-on scores since From Russia with Love. So this yeah. is Barry's swan song. Yeah, yeah. That's that's going to be quite sad in some ways, isn't it? But. Um... Like his impact on on the series is is unquestionable. I mean, you let, I was listening, like I sent you some music on Spotify today, and just some of his pieces are absolutely amazing. John yeah. Barry's one of the best. You know, got to be up there with like your your top five or ten movie score guys ever. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like in terms of like creating iconic bits of music and experimentation and and what he actually managed to achieve i mean he's he's right up there i mean any kind of compilation of like your top movie themes or movie um now you get those cds that come out or or box like 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 your sets like not box sets but playlists and stuff like his stuff is going to be is going to be on there no doubt about it you know yeah and like with Hans zimmer and and various like um john williams and your kind of various guys like he's one of those you know uh, before we go as well, actually, I want to do a quick, uh, a sort of little small tribute to Honor Blackman, who yep, passed away. Yep. Uh, it was Pussy Galore from Goldfinger. She recently passed away 
if I'm not mistaken, at the age, was it 94? Uh, did them did mm-hmm. anybody want to double check that? I think it was 94 she just passed away. Yeah, it which was. Is, it was uh, roughly that. Quite uh, a run. It, uh, yeah, that is an amazing run. Fantastic uh, life from Pussy Galore. I, I mean, that's I must admit, that's the only thing I know her from. I know she did the Avengers in the 60s or the 70s. And then she was very well loved from that and a few other things that she's done. But just even speaking about Pussy Galore, she was, we spoke about it at the time in that podcast. That character was was fantastic, especially for the third Bond film when they were really kind of written as quite cliche and, and all that sort of stuff that sh- that character had a lot more going on that and i think that was definitely on her as well i mean it's she the, was she kind of transcended she sort of transcended the like there's always been throughout most of the films so far apart from maybe th- i'd say three or four of them out of the ones we've watched most of the bond girls are just devices basically like they're just there's nothing there there's no actual character involved at all really they're just expositional devices or uh, foil for bond in some way like that that's yeah. all they really do and um, whereas yeah she definitely went beyond that i think and and, and i think as steve barry's right to say it was it's not just the script i think it was part of like the acting as well definitely oh, certainly yeah there was uh, there was various reasons why and the, if you look at all of connery's films especially the first five as some of this was accents and I don't know, but the, I think Honor Blackman was the only leading female cast member out of the f- first five Connery films who wasn't dubbed. And I think she just had such a, a great voice. She quite a sort of nasally voice, very distinctive, and just came across so well. And she was in so many iconic scenes, especially Bond waking up in the, the private plane and seeing her focusing interview. But yeah... And then it's so strange how they did that. So after her, I think that the it wasn't till Diana Riggin on Her Majesty's where the the leading female character wasn't actually dubbed, which was kind of weird. But obviously they dubbed it so well. But I mean, she's such a great voice. So do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah, it was a uh, yeah ninety four. S- sad, but obviously that's some uh, some life. So well, that's it. I mean, you can't complain if you get to ninety four years old. You've done something right, you know. I mean, yeah. that's that's a good. That, like, that, that's not a tragic death. That's a that's you. You're kind of just talking about the person and what they did. I suppose it's like it's sad, but I mean, it's it's and great it's, she got to that age, you know. As well as the fact that she played a character pussy galore, but that character was able to rise above that name like that character was fantastic even despite that sort of like i mean one of the most on the nose names ever Uh like i mean it's it's patently ridiculous like like nobody who the fuck is going to i mean it's got to be like a deed pole name like nobody's ever going to name their daughter that it's like naming yourself phil mccracken it's why also she's such like Iconic actress and iconic character in that because it's for the name and the way her character was. It's 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 one female characters, one of the first ones your average casual fan in the streets going to think of, or someone that's not even a fan. Will say, "Oh, I remember Pussy Gore," or though you know the same as maybe. See, when you think about it, she's like the top one. I mean, she she's probably the first well, yeah. girl that people think of. But, well, sadly, probably because of the name. To be honest, like the name is very memorable. Yeah. But the thing is, like, 
I don't know about you guys, but like I have like I've not said this on any of the casts, but I've got very little patience for the Bond girl names. Like I find them to be quite irritating. Like I, I, yeah. I don't like it. I'm like, with you on that actually. Yeah. Annoys yeah. me. Like it, 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 I've not said it, but every single time it's like, oh Jesus, come on, you know. Like I mean, it's it's a it's kind of an in joke at certain points. It's almost like breaking the fourth wall. I think to be honest. Aye. Like it, but it's just. It, to like, be honest, it's not it's not particularly clever once they can maybe do it once and then if that's yeah. fine if they yeah. did it once but it's like a running thing I and mean, only takes, austin powers can get away with it because that's a comedy it's a comedy yeah i mean it, it yeah. actually takes me out of the movie like i'm like oh jesus like why why is this convention the case like i mean it would almost be like you know donald trump's secretary having a name like that do you know what i mean like like you know, like anybody, anybody who's clearly kind of a bit of a megalomaniac maniac type of character in the real world isn't. It, it, what is all the secretaries going to have sexual names? I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, yeah. it, there's no. It, it it breaks the immersion in the movie. It's one of those things that I just think, oh, like. But then again, um, the whole kind of octopusy thing, like that was fine because that. But then again. That was interesting because that was a nickname that was given to the the woman by her father, wasn't it? Which like is a, disturbing in yeah, a sense. Which yeah, which shouldn't be uh-huh. worse, but somehow is. Yeah. Yeah, but the I mean, funny thing is that was. Oh, sorry, I was going to say that was created for the film because I did a wee recap on the short story Octopus, which I hadn't read for years, and I think it was the uh, the male character was meant to be her father in the film. It was his his octopus was called Octopus. I, I think having a woman called Octopus was something that the Eon Productions did for the film. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of think at the time, like, it was the idea that, like, maybe maybe it was a certain a certain naivety at the time that, you know, like, sometimes you might call your daughter, oh, you're a wee pussycat or whatever, like, do you know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing. And he's obviously into octopuses and sea life, so I think that's the kind of thing that was going there, and they did attempt to kind of give some kind of justification, do you know what I mean, for the ridiculous um, kind of naming that was going on there but I, I don't think they've done it you know I, but we lose that as the films go on there's not so much of that thankfully like it goes away yeah, it's a hollywood thing to take something that works and just run with it and run with it and run with it until it's out of steam and that's what they did with the slightly dodgy sounding bond girl names but they, do you know what they, they did they, they keep cropping up and cropping up yeah, well, it, it, what is it? The world is not enough. There's another oh, terrible one in that. Christmas. Uh, uh, that uh, wasn't such a good one. Yeah, that was. But what, yeah. what I was going to say was seeing the Daniel Craig area. Era, sorry, they uh, they kept the names exotic without them sounding sexual. Like Madeline yeah. Swan, for example, was a good name. It kept that Fleming flavor without yeah. it sounding yeah. ridiculous. Like I like I like the idea. Like I like the idea of names having a bit of a kind of a romance to them or something. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be like Goodhead or Pussy Galore or whatever. Like I like the idea of the names having a kind of a exotic romance. You know. There's a there's something quite nice about that if it's a bit more subtle. Um, no, well, what's the names in this film, Gordon? What, who are we looking at? Girl names. Yeah, Kara Milovi. That's fairly normal, average sounding. Yeah, that's kind of that's typical she, Russian, really, standard Russian name. Yeah, you usually have the kind of main woman that that Bond ends up kind of you'd imagine in that sort of relationship at the end. Then there's like a kind of femme fatale. There really isn't in this. There isn't. After her, it's just a couple of like brief appearances. It's like money penny, and you know, there's it's only really her. Okay, well, uh, move on now to the film. Uh, we've 
it's kind of a sad mm-hmm. tribute tribute to Honor Blackman. I think we've given her that was a it was a, a nice uh, we send off from from the Bondaf podcast and. We'll have to we'll have to cut this because this is obviously now thirty seven minutes in for the preamble. <laughs> this is going to be an epic. Yeah, so we'll. Uh... Is this actually a big part of this is like we're all so bored. Like as this lockdown goes on, the podcasts are going to get longer and longer. Because like, when do you get a chance to talk to anybody? Do you know what I mean? No. <laughs> like... Yeah, my biggest worry is my internet going off. I don't know if I can handle all this Skype. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be fine. Tablet can yeah, I like it. You'll be fine. Right, okay. We will uh, go and watch the film now and come back in spoiler detail. Uh, right, wait, wait, spoilerific. <laughs> spoilerific detail about the living daylights. Bye-bye. And we are back from watching The Living Daylights. I don't know about you guys, but I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Do we all feel the same? How do you feel? Steve, let's hear from you. I agree. It was thoroughly enjoyable. It's definitely the way to uh, to put that, the guns and the explosives and whatnot. I think I'm going to really enjoy Dalton as a Bond, and I'm almost feeling it's kind of a shame he's only doing the two, because I yeah. he was such a, a breath of fresh air, I think. after. I mean, I, I loved the movie, and you can't deny that it, He's a that Roger Moore is a brilliant Bond, but this is like chalk and cheese. He's just he's more chilled out. There's less of the corniness. He's a bit more brutal at times, actually. Yeah. But I I thoroughly enjoyed his performance. There's not a lot for me to take away to sort of as a for me to take away from this film as sort of negative points. Um, there are a few issues I think I had about location hopping, which I'm sure we'll um come to. But I think the the main thing the main takeaway from this i think is that it's a brilliant debut for timothy dalton absolutely fantastic um yep. and yeah overall we'll go into the specifics but this was a great film really yep. enjoyable franz your uh takeaway from this rewatch yeah i thought it was well, i thought it was great really i mean i i, I i'm not sure there's i, I only really have small nickels I'm, I'm actually kind of struggling to think what i would what would I criticise about the film? Well, because we don't, you don't have to criticise it just now. We're just summarising yeah. your experience watching the film. Yeah, that's the thing. Like that's what I'm saying is that there isn't anything that kind of stands out to me as like it's all positive, really. Like I enjoyed uh, Dalton as Bond. I thought he was um, refreshing. I thought he was more kind of um, it was like a simple performance as Bond. Do you know what I mean? Like Bond is this Bond is a professional killer. You know, yeah. like that the feeling you got from Timothy Dalton's Bond that he's that's his job it's his job to you know he's kind of frustrated with everybody else around him like anybody who gets yeah. his way or, you know he's he, he's there to do the job um, I thought the supporting cast was excellent I thought the action sequences were excellent I thought the music was great there was no stupid bits of music this time yeah. um, there wasn't any daft special effects that looked outdated there wasn't I just thought it was an all round I did feel though I have to say that as it was getting towards the end, I felt like it maybe dragged a little bit, just ever so slightly, around about the point where they were in the plane. And it was kind of like, when Bond got to the, the bomb and pulled it out, and it was just, because I thought, oh God, is he going to, is he going to like throw the bomb out of the plane and try and get Pushkin, not Pushkin, but the, the other guy with the bomb and all this kind of thing. You know, it was, it dragged a bit. I feel like maybe the sequence with the guy at the very, very end was a bit extraneous, the guy in the, the games room. 
Like, I, but that's the only thing I would say. Okay. About about the whole yep. film. Gordon, you've obviously seen this uh, a fair few times, probably more than the rest of us. What was your your experience on this rewatch? Yeah, I really enjoyed the film, Steve. And equally, really enjoyed all the the positive comments from you guys while we're watching it through the WhatsApp. And what I love about talking to different people about Bond films is people noticing different things. And a lot of things which people would say are disappointments about some films are real strengths to others. Like I really, I thought there was a there was good chemistry between um, Bond and Cara. Mariam Diablo's character and a lot of people say that she's not the best Bond girl and stuff so that and you guys it seemed like you were in similar uh, lines to me with that and and obviously enjoyed the the Afghanistan scenes the the way the way in which um back then the the Afghans were they were actually allies of of Bond for a short period of time but the yeah I really I loved the the dark sides that that Dalton brought to Bond he was doing things People talk about what Daniel Craig did for the franchise and, and and Dalton was doing a lot of that stuff 17, 18 years before, bringing the character back down to earth, back to basics, going back to the Bond in the book. And I think especially I really enjoyed those those earlier scenes, the pre-titles sequence with him. I think Dalton does the action scenes really well, like the, the scene in Gibraltar and the pre-titles. And then the, I really love that, the defecting scene of Kozkov and you can tell Bond views it as a dirty job and he doesn't want to be doing it. And yet it was so well played compared to the way that the the short story was. That basically that the short story, The Loving Daylights, was all that was was the defection sequence. And it was played out almost exactly like the way it was in the short story in the film. And I really enjoyed that. But yeah, I think, and actually, believe it or not, I'm glad you guys get positive things to say about Dalton because I think the best is yet to come from him in the next the next film. But it was a great introduction from him, and the, they weren't afraid to use the Bond music right away. It's yeah, and it, great. It's a real great action film, first and foremost. Yeah, yeah, I can completely agree. Uh, I think Dalton uh, Dalton's take was so different from Moore, it's it's chalk and cheese as someone I think you, you said it Steve um from the previous bond and that we've not seen that in a way because we were kind of given that sort of style from even Connery and his last film the comedy was starting to come through and Diamonds Are Forever that silliness the transition to Moore didn't seem as contrasting and, and things like that it felt like it felt natural actually the, the films were going that way but this was an abrupt 180 within two years as well 85 was the film before this was 87 this was a two-year change and they decided i mean it's the same director it's, it's john glenn and it's the same writers uh michael wilson and, and i think barbara broccoli at this point was getting involved you know it just shows you with the change in actor you know and a change in a few other things you know different money penny all that the style changed and the writing changed and I am for one I loved it. They reigned in the um they reigned in the script and they reigned in the story a lot because like we were having a lot of kind massively. Of, uh, yeah. It was like end of the world, someone's gonna take over the world, space stations and things like that. Whereas in this film basically it was a guy who it was like a conspiracy between like it was to do with the Soviets and drug deals and, and like guys who were kind of playing other spy, like playing them for fools and catching them out and things like that. It, there was a lot it was it was a lot more kind of like real world. You could you could actually be, like like you could believe that this was gonna happen. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know? I, I think 
Yeah, in the comparison, like obviously Timothy Dalton studied the the books and wanted to his stamp was going to be he was going to rein it back to Bond of Ian Fleming's book was, and I I appreciate that from reading just Casino Royale, I could see what he was trying to do, and I fully fully appreciated that that take on it, and it did get rid of all of the problematic uh, the word to to use for all of the things that Bond has done previously I think mostly there was not much you can say on this at least I can't think that anything was egregious where um, you know a a sort of perspective on women and things like that there was only one love interest in the film there was only Cara that's the first time that that was a surprise yeah that's true Uh, you know you expect it's always free like I feel like it kind of it got rid of a few different problematic things so like you're kind of like, I'm not sure that Bond has a problematic relationship with women that is worse than the society it was in at the time over the years. Do you know what I mean? Like, but I think it moved at <clears throat> times so we can see that. But I think the problem Bond had with women was more in how they were written. Like, they weren't written very well. Like, even even compared to other movies that were coming out at the time. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think that's definitely improved because she was a well-rounded character. But I think as All well, right. you didn't have... So that improved. That improved. It was um, also, there wasn't, like, going to Afghanistan, it wasn't a caricature of Afghanistan. Do you know what I mean? So, so like, it was, it felt like you were actually getting taken to a kind of a, a war zone invaded country. Like, it wasn't like, you know, there was snakes coming out of pots and folk playing flutes like, and, and running over hot coals and all that. It wasn't like that. It was, it yeah. was, a, it was a lot better. So, and like, even the Soviets weren't like that. The Soviets all were different to each other. Like, there was no, like, like, there wasn't really very much lazy writing in this. Yeah, yeah there were maybe just going on the, the realism angle a bit more. And the, the Bond series is all about the blend, as I've kind of before. You need to have a film every so often where you're making it more in the, the realistic side rather than the megalomaniac, flashy side. I feel there's certain elements that could have made this film a bit more flashy, especially towards the end when I agree with Fran, actually, that it did drag a little bit in Afghanistan. But it's all about the blend, and I find it's 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 a good kind of bridge between a view to kill and license to kill. I'll not really go into too much detail about license to kill, but um, he kind of um, there was there's still some real kind of top what I would call bonding elements to this film, where you just even even though he wasn't even though it was a much more serious Bond, Dalton, he's still there's a sequence where he's sliding down the hill on, on the cello and he's um, yeah. he's got the, yeah. the car with all the built-in um, defence systems and everything, you know, and it's good. It's, I feel as well, like, although it, I think um, it was great the way Casino Royale brought everything back down to earth and almost pressed the reset button, but we were, they were able to do it in this film without making a straight reboot, you know, there was a continuation with Robert Brown as M. Um, there was a, there was, um, there was hints that Gogol was in it later on there was hints of continuation and when you can get over once you can get over the idea that Bond looks younger he looks different he acts a bit different to Roger Moore's character once you go over that it's um, it's just a good bridge forward and it's again it's keeping up with the times you know Barry's music he's, he's it's still got those trademark John Barry beautiful moments but He's um he's starting to utilize sort of electric percussion. You'll notice a lot as well, and it's and the 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 um the Pretenders songs, which are written for the film. There's that if there was a man, and where's everybody gone? That's the main. You guys were talking about a motif that that da, 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 that um was 
played repeatedly, and it's that's as well bringing it into the eighties. It's good. Yeah, I mean the thing is, like the music, I thought um, there was whole sequences of it that was almost it was sounded like Goldeneye on the N sixty four. Like it, the music yep. sounded exactly like that. It, it, it really, you know, and I think what helped was the fact that it was a very Soviet centric film. So you had these scenes of Soviet soldiers, and I'm going through it, like all that kind of thing. But that kind of music as well. There was definitely this. There was a very a, a very kind of familiar feel to the film. Mm-hmm. You know. And talking about Casino yeah. Royale, sorry, and I, I think as well, there's a there's a, the, the sort of back to basics feel. This film that it reminds me a lot of Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace because it's it's uh, there's certain elements of the film are, are quite low key and it's more of a realistic espionage world. It's even kind of going back to the way Doctor No and From Russia with Love were when Bond's doing a bit more detective work and that sort of thing. Okay, let's uh, let's try and tackle. Uh, what, what, what we want to focus on something uh, I was thinking we've spoken a bit about the music we'll, we'll start with the music then um, well let's talk about the theme song the actual title theme well, do you think I, that? I don't think the theme I think with a lot of Bond themes the actual title music as it's played isn't as good as the motif that John Barry pulls out of it so like a lot of the time I don't like the song as much as I like the actual like when John Barry pulls the motif out and it's used in the film. Like I like the orchestral version better. But it was a fine song. Yeah. It was fine. But it wasn't like but but when it was translated to orchestral instruments it became really good. I think it was it was under it was more kind of yeah. understated. It wasn't one of the big sort of bombastic ones. It was a little cooler. It was definitely you could tell it was the eighties. But I mean I I, I you're absolutely right, Fan. I liked it, but I liked it more when it was used in the film. The way it was kind of the repeated motif was, yeah, that was excellent. Yeah, I think, although it's never been to me one of the my favourite title themes, sometimes I think I have to look beyond what I'm hearing at, at, at first glance. It's also, if you look into the lyrics, I think the lyrics are very well written, set my hopes up way too high, as it livings and the way we die, it's it's got the they're hitting the nail on the head. I think it was Barry and one of the guys from AHA that co-wrote it, and they're they're capturing the essence of Bond and a lot of those lyrics, which is something that's just so important, even right to this day. The No Time to Die theme—that's something you got to do. Mm-hmm. Yep, and Morris Binder's title screen is the lyrics coming up. Uh, I yeah. thought it was fine as well. You know, it wasn't just silhouettes of of women as well at this point. Now it's actual. The actual woman, which is interesting. Uh, I like the uh, music. It had that Soviet feel, as just as Fran said as well. Uh, throughout. Let's continue on on Dalton. Then I feel like we need to spend a bit more time on him. Um, for me, I loved just how <laughs> he seemed permanently pissed off, especially at the start. He ordered people around. He had no patience for anyone. He just oh man, you're he, gonna love License to Kill. The he, Permanently pissed off. <laughs> yeah, yes, I can remember. He's he is obviously it's a different situation in that film, but yeah, like he he had that kind of he just had an urgency about him where he didn't want to mince words with anyone, didn't want to charm and sh- schmooze, and he was just wanting to what's the job, get the job done. You stand over there, I'll do this. <laughs> I it was liked so it. Good in the see, yeah, especially I noticed that in the the defection scene when Bond has to. He thinks he's protecting Kozkov from a KGB sniper because he assumes that Kozkov is actually truly defecting to the British. It, turn, it turns out to be fake. 
But I love the way he orders Saunders around the who's the other MI6 agent. And he's so he's so hostile to Bond. Bond properly gives it back to him. because he, he he mentions about the bullets. He says, You'll need those snub nose ones, I believe, or something. And Bond's like, no, steel tipped. And he says why, because they usually wear bulletproof vests. And then he said he says to Bond, you're in a need to know basis, and you don't need to know basically. And then Bond turns the tables in him and says the same thing when he escapes in the car. You can tell he's dealing with a paper pusher, someone who plays everything by the book, follows all the rules, the complete opposite of Bond. And Bond just, I like that he has absolutely no time for that crap. I kind of, I think yeah. we all come across folk in our various workplaces who are the, the do-gooders who will follow every rule to the letter and just think, oh, piss off and get it done the proper <laughs> way, the quick way. I love the way he was revealed, the the pre-title, where you started off with three double O's and you didn't know which one was Bond and they were sort of slowly being taken out. And then you, it goes around, you kind of, you see the first double O and you go, oh, is that him? Oh, no, no, it's not that one. Oh, is it that one? The second one? And then he gets killed. And then you see Dalton. I thought as a as a sort of mechanism for revealing the new Bonds, I like that. I thought that was that was quite clever. Yeah, I can't deny it was weird seeing his face for the first time. And it, after watching seven more films, particularly the last one where he is properly anxious, <laughs> and you see this sort of young face, you go, "That's, that's that, that can't be Bond." Yeah. But it's amazing how quickly he slips into it. And after a few, it only takes a few minutes for you to go, "Right, yeah, that's Bond." Um. So I mean it. So sort of in that respect, the, the pre-title sequence was particularly important in this one. And I, I just I like the way, the sort of clever way it was done. Beautifully done, yeah. But would you agree probably with me, Steve? Oh, yeah. I loved it. If you're asking me, <laughs> or yeah, Steve. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I loved it. I thought that was a fantastic entire section. It built up tension. The Just the, the thought of, you know, you're scaling a mountain as a terrifying prospect and then to realise when the character, one of the double O agents realises what's, what's going to happen to him. Absolutely shocking. And it's yeah, it's it's good to see these agents are going on training missions and things like that. It's a side you haven't seen before, and I, I think I like that. I think that's something they obviously they keep that going with, with by Goldeneye as well with 006, and it's something that it grounds it a little. Uh, it shows you that, and also like his reputation stands out even amongst obviously. It's not like they're all just like James Bond. You know the line that uh, double O is it double O six? He's uh, or double O eight that he's uh, with. Uh, he's uh, Saunders. And he sort of says, like, Bond, stop focusing on the woman in the job or whatever, as usual, or something like that. You know, he's obviously got a rep. Uh, no, well, don't, don't focus on the ladies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah something like that. Uh, which I liked. I think there was interesting little character moments there, given within the dialogue, that was subtle. It was it was a much more nuanced, kind of subtle film, I think. Well, uh, I, I think as a whole, like, with Dalton, what you were seeing was... Um, a, there was a lot more of a restrained bond, so he was he was more professional. The portrayal was more professional, more needing to get the job done. But there was moments where you could tell that, um, like particularly the moment where what's the woman's name? It's Cara, is it? Um, when uh, Bond is about to go and carry on his mission, and she gets frustrated with him and kind of hits him with the pillow, like, and then you can tell that you can see a slight smile on his face as as he's getting knocked down with like, by being hit with this pillow that he's amused by what's going on. Like, there's a softer side to this Bond, but it's very, very, very subtle. Like, extremely subtly shown. Like, the fact he doesn't shoot her at the start, his slight reaction there, 
Um, like to, to well, the be... entire scene in Vienna when they're at the theme park was yeah. when you really saw a soft side coming out. That was him. It was the first time you saw Bond taking a woman on a date and yeah. properly yeah. setting everything up rather than just trapping her in a room and sort of forcing himself on her. Which this was a, a love story. This was, like a, yeah. this, was a, this was a romantic film. I wouldn't uh-huh. say comedy even. It was a, just a romantic yeah. drama. It, wasn't part um, of it was, yeah. It wasn't like Bond had to do that as part of the mission. But the thing is, the minute things got serious again, it got serious because he went up. Obviously, the spell was broken because he goes up to her in the park and he's like, "We're leaving now, or whatever." Like and that was it. It was over, you know. Yeah, yeah. By that, yeah. mind on the mission at all times. How, yeah, and I loved how Bond used. To, he was using his ingenuity. He had a hunch that M was telling him that General Pushkin is ordering assassinations against Britain, and that he's the problem and bond had a hunch that pushkin that's not the sort of thing he would do he thinks there's something more to it and he kind of bends the rules a bit to, he's not supposed to go to bratislava and find cara because he doesn't know who she is exactly until i think money penny helps him out under the radar so i love that i do like as well see when he's at the theme park although saunders the other mi6 guy is he was he was so hostile to Bond, and they um he com- made a formal complaint about Bond, but Bond gets him on his side, and they he then he then risks his own job to help Bond, and uh, just before he dies, it's quite a sad scene, but Bond kind of calls him back, and says thanks, and he smiles back to Bond, which is um it was really nice. It was uh, so that character kind of went on an arc a bit, and maybe I suppose Bond did, and then you kind of felt bad when he did. Then the the rage in Bond's face when he you can tell every time you've seen it in so many films when one of Bond's own is killed when another MI six colleague's killed, he's really hurt, and just the rage in his face when he bursts the balloon after Saunders is killed, yeah. and it's got that as you know that search spewing him death despise the slogans is to make Bond think that. Um, the Russians are ordering these killings. It's, um, you know, it sends Bond into a rage, and I, I think that's what Dalton does as well. And that's when his great acting skills come out when he's when he's portraying an angry Bond. Mm-hmm. Well, that that plays into Dalton as a villain in other movies. Like he's got that dark. Dalton's got a dark side as an actor. There's no doubt about it. Now you can see that a lot in this film as well. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I like the like talking about the relationship with Kara as well. There was things that were different with this version of Bond. You know, he, he checks in at the hotel and he's going to go. He could have went with the same room. It's just one bed, but then they say no, no, make it two bedrooms this time. There's no assumptions then that he will be sleeping with her and sort of manipulating the situation so that, which I think the Roger Moore version of Bond and even the Connery version would have done. There would have been an assumption that they'd have been in the one bed and it's the girl that would have to say, no, no, I want my own bed sort of thing, which I think has maybe happened before. But this was different. There was no, he wasn't trying to seduce it. If he was, it was so subtle and it was just naturally built up. Well, I, I think like. the reason for that was that, and I think it's it's better writing, really. Because yeah, yeah, exactly. What's happened is that they've written a, a female c- counterpart for Bond that wasn't f- essentially part of the mission. So it allowed Bond to, to form a normal human relationship with a woman for a change, like rather than just seeing her as a source of information to seduce her or, or like like rush things right through the way through like to get what he wanted. Like it was more of a, like that's, that because the guy at the desk did assume, because the guy knew Bond and he was like, oh, your usual room. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, it'd be two this time. So it's Bond that knows it's different because it's not the mission. 
this is something separate. And then and then you get your whole fairground sequence where Bond's effectively, as we've said, like taking her on a date. You know, like so you can see that as a character, Bond when when he's not using a person as a source of information, he treats them normally. Do you know what I mean? Which is quite nice. It's quite nice to see that. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really well written. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I think there's the occasional moment. Well, let's focus on Kara then as a character. There is um, one moment, though, Steve. Yeah. There's one moment where it where it goes a bit funny, and I commented on it on the group chat where he says something about Bond specifically. Aha, uh-huh. yeah. So they go in the fairground. They go in the big Ferris wheel thing, and um, I think it's meant to be a romantic line, but it came off as a bit creepy to me because he says to her. Don't think about it. Just let it happen. <laughs> just yeah, that I spotted that. That was a bit creepy. Yeah. Now that's creepy. Like as in any circumstance. Like say someone's giving you like say like there's two sixteen year olds and one of them's giving the other a cigarette or for the first time or someone's like trying a drug or or doing something and it's like oh just don't think about it. You know, it's like just do it. Just you know that kind of thing. Like I think under any context, like it's not really. Like, it's a creepy line, isn't it? It's like, yeah, I can't... Yeah, well, he was persuading her to cheat on what she thought was her boyfriend. Like, go with, with your heart. Yeah, I, I guess it, there, I would, if I had written that scene, because she said something already, she was like, oh, I just think about us being together. Like, that's the opening that he was given. And I would have written it that he would have said something like, oh, do what feels right for you, basically. Mm-hmm. That, that's the line I would have written. Yeah, no, I agree. Right. It's yeah. not... It's not just that, he stopped the Ferris wheel as well. He made it stop at the top. Yeah, exactly. But like, can you see how just that slight change of the line there? Like yep. he's saying the same thing. Yeah. But it's I think it was, yeah. a, a much better way. Like if, if Bond was to have it's said jarring, yeah. Uh-huh. Like if, was, if, he'd, yeah. if he'd said something like go with your heart, do what feels best for you, it would have been a nice scene. It was a sort of betrayal of what we'd seen already from this character, isn't that he wasn't manipulating and forcing things but that one line was kind of like a slight deviation from that pers- that uh-huh. side of bond yep. but it, that felt like it was maybe the sort of thing the Roger Moore bond might have said exactly. uh, I mean, the thing is, like, I mean none of us are like big on pedantry do you know what I mean but I think that that, that line was badly written like, I that's think an interesting that, yeah. point one line I suppose yeah. that is uh, interesting think, yeah, point. I think the character motivation was right I think that he obviously liked her and she liked him and that, that the meaning was do what feels right for you let's just go with how we feel kind of thing but I think that the the line was bad it was a bad thing yeah. I think it also helps that we knew we knew as well as he did that her boyfriend was a crook was using well, I, her and things like that. Yeah, but I think more importantly, we knew that she fancied him as well. So she she had already said to him, "Yeah, um, oh, I'm already thinking about us being together or whatever." But I just think honestly, like when I heard that line, I thought, "Oh my god, you've done so well throughout this entire film. Why did you write that line? Like that is such <laughs> yeah, a it's, line. It's like, quite, yeah. it's like, quite I, strange it's because it's not like a sixty year old guy would write. Like at the time, do you know what I mean? Whereas like. Honestly, like I, that's why I wrote about it in the group chat because I was like, "Oh my god!" I was like, I, I thought this is a great scene. This is really playing up to a really nice moment here. And then Bond said that, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, why? Why did you say that? You know, Gordon, what were you going to say? Well, yeah, I was just going to say it was a bit strange. It was as though they were trying to maybe at that point make him a bit more like Moore's Bond. Maybe you could say, you know, Dalton, he wasn't so much the ladies' man Bond the way like say Moore or Brosnan was. And I think they were maybe trying to make him like that and that scene and it didn't come off so well some people say as well that they think that Tim doesn't really do the one-liners as well as the likes of those guys, some of them I I think that can be a bit harsh, some of the one-liners I think he did 
he pulled off well in this film, uh, but there was a I few kinda, were a bit kind of. Well, there was they were a bit flat. There was a part they were a bit flat. He he doesn't do the humor side of it well. I don't mind. I'd rather they just avoided it because a lot of the time it doesn't work for me anyway. If I'm completely honest, well, they, it's it. the other side of Bond that I like. It's the the menace and villains and the the characters and the action and things. The humor, you know, one liners. They're a cheap laugh sometimes, and they're done really well. They're great, but yeah, some of his in this film weren't great. I mean, there was one there was one one liner that was done really well, but it was because what they did was it was when Bond like had to cut off like the guy was hanging on his boot um out of the airplane yeah. hold on to his boot and then yeah. Bond used a knife to cut his laces and the guy falls up like basically grabs like he's holding on to his boot, falling to his death. And then when Bond goes back in, Kara says what happened and Bond says, I gave him the boot, right? But instantaneously as soon as he says that line there's a big panic because they're about to hit a mountain in, in the plane and then they have to pull up. So the one-liner, you don't even have a chance to properly laugh at no. it, right? So yeah. it's done very well. It, like it, yeah. When they've used it, they've used it in quite a fresh way. The because thing, cause I yeah. laughed at the line and then I was like, oh, shit, because like, I, I, I laughed at it and then instantaneously the, you're shitting yourself because they're about to hit the mountain. So it was like, it's not the same. Do you know what I mean? And Bond shat himself as well. Like you could see the look in his face. He said the line, and he looked up, yeah. and he was like, "Shit," <laughs> you know. Well, so. I'd love to point out what a great stun that was as well. So Bond and and Necros, he's essentially the main henchman working for Koskov, and I the two see. of them are hang, they're hanging out that big cargo Is net he at the back. Necros. Necros, yeah. Necros. Necros. Yeah, I don't know if you hear that. I don't know how I know <laughs> that. It's all the Bond books, on, but um, named after death. The yeah. guy was in Die Hard. He played, but the thing is, seeing seeing Die Hard, he, he seemed more like a just a genetic terrorist. They made him. They gave him a wee kind of couple of kind of Bond henchman signature things. Like he has the wee explosive milk bottles, which was quite good, I thought. And he's got that kind of you know Bond hairs. Kind of, I mean, you could say you know it's making him similar to like Red Grant and from Rush with Love and I. In a way, he's, he's kind of menacing. He's got a look. But what I was going to say was that stunt, like the two of them are hanging out. It's the netting at the back of the cargo plane. And that was done for real. It was two, obviously, two stuntmen from a distant shot. And, uh, you know, it was probably hundreds of feet up in there. So that was really good, first of all. But yeah, the thing you were saying, Fran, about I'm hanging on to Bond's boot. And Bond starts to cut all the laces of his boot. And he's like, no. But I always thought, He's just grasping onto Bond's boot for dear life. Can they not just suddenly hold on to the, the net itself? The Bond's yeah. hold on to. Why did they grasp on that boot for about five seconds? And then he's like, ah, falling I guess, off. I guess it must have just been pure panic. You know, I mean, he he, he just gave, like he had no like that, that. That's what I thought. I thought, why isn't he just doing this? I thought well, he was well, trying to pull Bond off. I think. Yeah. And thought, all oh, right, I've got his, I've got his leg. I'm going to take so, him off now. So I don't, he didn't expect Bond to cut the laces. <laughs> so Necros would have been. You're loving this, aren't you? <laughs> he would have been satisfied if they both died. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing because yeah. in Die Hard, John McClane kills that same actor by just um, kind of wrestling him down a flight of stairs. But he took a bit more than that to be killed in Living Daylight. Did anybody else find it kind of like annoying but also funny whenever Necros showed up with that music playing? It was like that same song. The 80s through headphones. Yeah. yeah. The same. Aye, that was, that was, <laughs> aye, the, that was aye, the main protector song, wasn't it? 
It's the same, the same tune every time he showed up. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of he cool was how carrying he's... his own theme song basically with him. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really well choreographed fight as well. When he's uh, he's posing as the milkman in in the MI6 safe house, he's essentially there to break Kozkov out. And that Cos-cos. fight in the kitchen, <laughs> that fight in the kitchen's brutal. He's throwing a pan of boiling water. He pushes the guy's <laughs> face onto the the grill and oh it's it's a really well choreographed fight Do you know, i'll tell you something gordon here's the craziest thing right when i was watching that scene i remembered i had a flashback to a memory it must have been when i was like five or six years old and like i must have like got out of bed when i shouldn't have got out of bed and gone down the stairs to speak to my parents and my dad was watching must have been watching this film on the telly right mm-hmm. and that scene like i remember like seeing it as i walked in the room like the boiling water and the thing with the grill and 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 being really quite scared by that, and then get going back to bed. But like obviously, I didn't know what film it was. It's but, funny, uh, I because I saw that film for the first time. I must have been about nine or ten, and for some reason, that's the main scene I remembered. It was that fight in the kitchen. I think it's because it's something that, as a child, it's very much like your your environment. Like when you're a young child, like going abroad or going in planes or whatever. If someone's when you're a kid, you're always told don't mess around with things in the kitchen. You know, like yeah. water and and whatever, like the toaster or a hob or whatever. Not, I, yeah. It's probably also just the shock of seeing a milkman. I mean, you don't see many milkmen these days, do you? <laughs> don't, certainly don't see many. Uh, yeah, but I, I think it's also the fact that the no, milk the explosive killing. milk bottles. No, yeah. yeah, the explosive milk bottles was a great touch. I thought I really oh, liked yeah. that as a weapon. Uh, let's uh, let's focus then on the villains. Then Necros, we've obviously started speaking about. I thought he was a very menacing character, and like the Red Grant sort of feel uh, that sort of style of Bond villain, uh, the slick back hair. Uh, annoyingly, he was probably just as good looking as any of the females in the scenes like that scene with the pool i was like bloody hell <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah the six pack going from yeah the, the, the women all seem to be swarming around Coscov. did you notice that yeah that was like the only time where it felt like they were going for that sort of like scantily clad female section of a bond film but it was okay. it made sense it was the villain's hideout like we we all know 100 percent that there's going to be situations where guys with hundreds of money, like corrupt guys, are going to be surrounded by a bunch of scantily clad women. Do you know what I mean? Like, exactly. I think, like, I think that's one of those things that was an indicator that he was a bad guy. Yeah, I'm like, not, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm not saying anything about it. I'm saying this was a fantastic way. That was a that was a the the scene made complete sense. Yeah. In fact, he took away from them because he was just as sculptured than <laughs> as they were. Yeah, and the funny thing, like, but Koskov's complete like lack of regard like that bit where he got up and he just shoved it, one of the girls in the pool and walked away do you know what I mean like he, yeah. didn't, he didn't care about any of them like they were just it's quite a villainous thing I think where this film succeeded actually was separating out behaviours between the bad guys and good guys yeah like was, exactly this is yeah this is exactly how I prefer them to be written like this is what I loved about it yeah like I thought that Let's, was really good Koskov then sort of the dual main villain I suppose there's not really one main one you would say I mean I suppose if you were to do it by between him and uh, Whitaker, obviously he's a kind of a slimy corrupt villain what did you think of him? Well they were in um, the funny thing about the two villains in this film is that they're both deeply flawed weak characters so you've got like Koskov who is a coward and an opportunist and then you've got Whitaker, who is like a failed military guy who is like basically plays with toys. Yeah, 
you know and and like who was that guy that he had like a fake like officer that he had like a, a sergeant or something that he was like all right sergeant like this guy that would come like his henchman like wearing yeah. uniform so like basically it was like a pairing of two very flawed kind of very weak people you know like in a sense like they weren't they didn't have like they weren't a the typical megalomaniacs that we're used to they were the kind of scum of the underworld almost the, yeah. they were obviously in positions of power they were controlling various people and they had a lot of arms and drugs and stuff between them to deal with but yeah. you're right they they weren't the Again, it was a kind of shake up from the previous films, and that this was these guys weren't big, evil, could kill you at the drop of a hat or whatever. They did seem very, when they were confronted, they had people doing all the dirty work for them, but they were kind of hiding in the background. And when they were confronted, they couldn't quite handle it. I mean, Whitaker right at the end was relatively brutal. Yeah, but, but the thing even is, then, it didn't take much to get rid of him. Aye, but he was like, it was like Whitaker reminded me of a guy on an online game who does spawn camping. You know when someone like hides and kills people like from a distance, like they, you know, like when he had that weapon that had the shield and he had his body armor on and he was just cackling yeah. and laughing and it was kind of like, um, he was just a big coward basically who liked to hide behind, like he he lo- like just that type of character. The two of them were the type of people who just loved to be shielded and protected and they'd have a great time being. Yeah. But the minute they, as you say, the minute they were exposed, they were fucked. You know. Yeah, Whitaker. Yeah. It wasn't exactly my favourite, but I loved the obsession he had with just war in general. Not He didn't have a particular side. It was just, he had all these um, mannequins of, I think he had Napoleon and all of these military leaders. And you see, he was so kind of egocentric. They all had his face. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it, was, it was kind of odd. I don't know why he was doing this, but when Pushkin came to visit him to see what the hell he was up to, he was posing as one of the mannequins, and just you know, like a waxwork, just with his face totally straight for about three or four seconds. But but I, I do like how um, he had that obsession with war, but it was it was just a, a bit of an underwhelming villain. Well, the thing is, though, Gordon, I think what it was like, it, it wasn't trying to create like. We've had enough godlike genius yeah. villains. I think exactly. what it was trying, what it was trying to do, was to give us the weirdness of a villain, like with his, like him with his idiosyncrasies with the games and the the waxworks and stuff. But to show it as like a sign of an unstable and weak-minded person, basically, like like that that all of that stuff, all of that megalomania, all of that kind of like trying to make yourself out to be like. The, the way um, Koskov had his whole kind of like wanted the basket of caviar and Bollinger and all that. A lot of very kind of insecure people hide behind wealth or grandiose displays. And I think that's what, what in a subtle way, the film actually showed that. Because all of the quirky stuff you get from the villains was there. But it was it was it was kind of covering up the fact that, that basically Whitaker was a failed sh- a soldier and Koskov was a coward. That's it. But it was all it was all but there. It's interesting it was all- that- the fact that they did that almost made them, because they weren't big and bombastic and ordering people about and shooting people and stuff, it did make them more forgettable, I suppose, than previous Bond villains. The, the villains weren't a massive feature of this film. The work that they were doing behind the scenes was played out in the film, but the villains themselves didn't feature particularly heavily. And I think for that, they weren't particularly... They're not particularly memorable i think um yeah. in the whole of the film as, as the as the cast goes they're I not kind a, of who stuck like, out like most real life villains that's the thing the more real like the more realistic you make a villain the less memorable they become 
Yeah, but like maybe yes, you can't absolutely. do a Dalton era film. Maybe I suppose License to Kill. We might be able to say they can, but maybe the way they set it up, these fil- these villains were never going to be your Jaws. They were never going to be your Goldfinger because of the style of film it's going for. I like them, but I can see what you're saying. They they aren't maybe they aren't as memorable in the Bond pantheon of villains. Like I find them to be a million times more interesting because I, I was fascinated by their characters. I was like, yes. I, I found like just, I love, I, I'm a real kind of like sucker for well-written characters, obviously, like I think we all are to a certain extent, but like, you know, I love it when you're given the right kind of information. It's like the minute that one of the guys, I think Pushkin said to Whitaker, um, you never even went to military school or whatever, you you failed. And I thought, excellent, so we're getting some depth here, some background to like why he's so obsessed with this stuff. Like why, I you know. Yeah, I love that that entire exchange. It explained his character yeah. um, for me, and I, I, again, I agree with you, Fran. That's one of my was. I like I like John Reese Davies in it. Thought he was a great addition to the film. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, and I think the what made like you said, Steve Koskov's a really slimy character, and he was a coward. And and one of the most dislikable things you could level at anyone is when they try and blame other people for when they lie to get other people in trouble like he um he came up with this story that pushkin was um ordering british agents to be killed which he wasn't it's kind of similar how to remember i don't know if you because he wasn't exactly the most memorable villain but in for your eyes only christatos blamed his crimes on colombo because he didn't like him and wanted him out of the way and similarly in this koskov wanted pushkin out of the way and he tried to arrange for to cause him to be killed by Bond. And of course, Bond with his just, you know, quick thinking and his his ability to think outside the box, he he knew that something wasn't quite right. You know, Pushing's got a bit of a reputation. He's tough and resourceful, but he's not a psychotic. That was what he said to him. And yeah, I like John Reese Davis in this. He's uh, full of charisma. And you, he could have maybe played a Bond ally quite well because he played this great ally in and Diana Jones in two films. I thought he was great. I thought he could have easily been a villain as well. I think he had oh, yeah. a, an intensity about him that I quite liked. I wasn't sure where we were going with him, actually, and I thought he was going to become a villain. So uh, that scene when Bond uh, infiltrates his, was it his hotel room or his house, whatever, with his wife, uh, and he's got the, the silencer pointed at, you know, I thought that was quite a, it was a good scene for Bond. It showed the sort of brutality we spoke about earlier. You know the, that bit where he effectively ripped the wife's clothes off to act as a distraction was particularly. That was the first one I thought, "Wow, this is a brutal Bond. This isn't your jokey Bond." Yeah. Um, and there was there was an element of I think it's it's the closest it got to problematic. Effectively ripping a woman's clothes off and using her body as a distraction, but it was it, it did show a certain um, sort of anger that we haven't seen. I don't think from any of the other Bonds yet. Yeah. It was weird watching that scene because I, I kind of thought like I was watching it and I, initially I was like, oh my God. And then, but as it played out, I thought, what's a cold blooded murdering killer going to do in a moment like that? He's got to have two seconds to make a plan, you know, and it showed the, it showed the brutal side, but it was entirely logical like to shock someone yeah, coming yeah. in the room. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it was weird. It was like, it actually showed, it's, it's we- a weird mix because it showed a, a bad side to Bond's character, but why he would make an excellent agent as well. Like, yeah, the, the intuitiveness horrible, was absolutely there. But like, but how horrible, like none of us would make a good agent because we wouldn't be able to do that. Like we would, we would, yes. we would have died. Like we would, we would 
not have had the, the dark streak to do something like that in that moment, you know what I mean? Whereas, like, that character had no qualms about it at all. Just just do it, you know? Survive yeah. at all costs kind of thing. And I like but, how Bond is his own kind of personal rule book as well. The way, again, I'll go back to that amazing sequence with the the fake defection where Bond, Bond's acting as a sniper to take out the sniper. And afterwards, when Saunders has given him a hard time in the car, he says, stuff my orders, you know. When when it suits Bond, he'll bend the rules. And it goes back to the Bond in the books. He, he's seen a lot of um, nasty things. It's clear from if you read the short story, he resents the job of having to... He doesn't want to have to kill someone. And he uh, he ignores his orders and he shoots the rifle out of the sniper's hands. Who ends up we we know it's Kara who's the sniper, and he says, "Stuff my orders." That girl didn't know one end of the rifle from another. And he says the line I really love because there's some great dialogue in this film. Let's be honest. He says, um, "I only kill professionals." That but I only kill professionals. He also yeah. says, um, "Let them fire me. I'd be glad if I was fired." Yeah, like, I spotted yeah. that. I liked that. That was kind of that showed the pissed offness of uh, of this Bond. Yeah, yeah. Well, in in the books, Bond was addicted to pills and addicted to various drugs and things like that. Like he was not a happy person. Like Bond was someone who was who struggled with what he was doing and and found it difficult and was a, basically like a functioning alcoholic. Like he basically there's certain sequences in the books where he describes like talks about the fact that he's practically an alcoholic. A, a drug addict, you know, as well. Yeah, um, and the the vodka martinis came out once or twice. It's good to good to see the the traits of Bond even the new act continue. You know, Timmy liked a smoke in this film as well. I noticed a couple of times, like when he's in the the Q branch lab, and and you know, it's great to see Q again. I actually thought um, that was maybe there was something I loved about Desmond Llewellyn in this film. You just see something in his eyes. There's a good chemistry between him and Dalton. Like he explains to Bond about the the key ring. And there's some, one or two good one-liners there. Bond, Bond's like, you don't get many normal people in this business. And you can tell Q's really pissed off. And he just... Yeah. I, I, there's just It's hard to explain. There's good chemistry there between the two of them. And I loved as well. There's, there's a few subtle things that see with Q... Q's actually assisting. He's kind of almost working out in the field again. He's helping Kozkov get into the plane. And you can tell he's like out of breath running up the steps to where the jet is. And he, you see him stuffing these pills into his mouth like, you know, he's on <laughs> medication or something. Yeah. I, I love Q. He's yeah. just such a lovable character. Yeah, and I, I like seeing the minister again and Gogol and all that. I'm going to miss them when they go. And M. Like, yeah. I'm going to miss... Like, I'm I'm glad that Q sticks with it for a bit longer. The like, defense general, minister like, seems to get grumpier in every film doesn't yeah, he he's, as yeah. he's getting older he's getting a bit you know yeah yeah he's just yeah, he's, he's irritated he's an old grandfather figure like just quite irritated what's going on around them yeah like as as a whole like you know looking at the whole film i mean i'm incredibly impressed with it like i, I just as i was watching it i was thinking this is a, just an excellent movie you know yeah yeah like as i was going through it like this the process of watching it i, I mean uh, to kind of go to what I would criticise, I don't know if it's the entire Afghanistan bit that dragged. I think it's probably like, probably, I thought the sequence where Bond was hanging out the back of the plane and the the ropes were getting, um, like they were kind of breaking and the guy was pulling on his leg and they were hanging out the back of the plane. That was like really 
I mean, there was a lot that that was great, but I, I do think that the point where he found the bomb and he defused it, I thought, oh, good, the film's over now. Like, like it's nice and tight. And then we had that whole extra bit with we had the whole load of stuff happened after that. I feel like that was a little bit. I feel I wish it I had been tied up more neatly. I guess at that point, like the whole kind of bit with Whit with um, is it Whitaker, the general guy, like in the yeah. Like that whole bit was amusing, but it was. I, I didn't mind. I, it. I, I got to say, I quite that's what I don't know. See, it was that kind of stuff that kind of lost me for this film. There, a lot of the location hopping because that was that point they they took off from Afghanistan, crashed the plane just outside Karachi in Pakistan, and then the next second he's back in Tangier in Morocco, and a mm. lot of that. I mean, the fact that I was I, at one point I did kind of go, wait, why the hell are they in Afghanistan? Because that was obviously that. Soviet plane landed, suddenly it was in Afghanistan. I did kind of think, hang on, what the hell is he doing there? Why is that? That, it felt a little bit, I can't remember which film it reminds me of, where I, I kind of commented that the location hopping and the fact that if you uh, blink for a couple of seconds and look back up again, it was in a different country. I think it was Moonraker. That kind of lost me slightly. And I felt that, I mean, it, it all made sense in the end, but it did kind of lose me halfway through. And I find that if I'm, if I'm lost halfway, if I, if I get that halfway through a film, it's difficult to claw it back. And it did. And it was the scene at the very end where they're hanging out the back of the plane fighting on that net, the genuine peril there that kind of helped claw it back for me. But a yeah. lot of it felt a little bit a little bit insane. Um, randomly See, coming across the English um, Afghanistan, a drug baron type guy who's living out in the middle of the desert. Yeah, but that was like a, that was quite a pointed reference to the whole kind of like Bin Laden was educated in a a, a posh English uni. Yes, like that that was a reference Absolutely. to that because at, at the time there when this Soviet parallels, well, no, literally, like literally at the time when the Soviets were invading Afghanistan, British and American yeah. secret services were assisting Mujahideen in Afghanistan through people like that. One of whom was actually Bin Laden. I know. Yeah, uh, but the thing is. Like, literally, at the time, Bin Laden would have been our best friend. Yeah. Which I is, mean, I suppose it, in some ways you can't sort of look at it differently a, because of it's one... Not it's not it's, it's just an interesting historical footnote, uh-huh. I suppose. That yeah, I think, yeah. Movie, we had think... um insurgents as allies in the movie. Terrorists, like, like, who nowadays, like, imagine that was British forces they were attacking, they were just ransacking a British base, like, flying through it, like, destroying the barracks <laughs> like it would have been terrible but like soviets well that's fine you know that's that's all right so it's interesting like just historically to look at how like one like enemy of my enemy is my friend you know yeah it's always that way. Mm-hmm. always yeah, very true uh is there anything else you want to talk about i suppose we haven't really spoken about kara too much uh as a character I, I, specifically i don't know like i, I thought we did but like i, I thought she was okay. great i I like the naivety. I like the fact that she was believably naive. Like she, like basically, her arc was that she wanted out of the Soviet Union to perform musically and go and do things around the world and all that, and admire the West and all that kind of thing. And she found a sponsor and she had ways to do things and people she trusted, but she got shafted, and that's quite understandable. And she wasn't like a military person. I mean, she obviously was trained to some degree um, in order to like because she wanted to get out of the Soviet Union, she was doing these other activities, but she was being used. And, like, I don't think, like, she could have been played by anybody, 
you could even have a guy playing that character and it would be believable that they would be that naive like when they got out of the Soviet Union, do you know what I mean? And they saw the West and they were so enamoured by it and um, that they could be used with their desperation to get out of a repressive regime and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I felt like the character, it's, it was a strong character. Like, yeah. She um, felt slightly annoying at parts in the fact that she had to, she eventually made Bond do twice the work. I mean, right sort of from the start where she insisted on picking up that cello which effectively yeah. held them up. And yes, it provided an escape mechanism going down that hill, which was a little bit silly, but there was that. And then towards the end, where particularly the stuff in Afghanistan on the airfield, you get the impression quite a lot through that that Bond would have found it a hell of a lot easier if Kara hadn't been there. I mean, he was in the plane final ready to take off and she was in the car on the runway screaming his name after him. And you just yeah. thought, the thing is, Steve, if she like, wasn't there, this whole thing would be a lot easier. I know, but I think that's part of the love story is that um, you could tell the first point that, that Bond had feeling, some sort of even just tiny amount of feelings for her. He saw her in the orchestra and, and she stood out. Then he, he didn't shoot her. And then when he had to go and get her and she wanted the cello, he didn't really know why. But like, I think we all know, like, with the, probably women in our, the women in our lives, we, we, we will go to extra trouble to do things to help them out, even if it makes things more difficult. And I think that's Bond's way of doing that. It was like, like, like she was obviously like, oh, please, can we go back and get the cello, please? We need to get it. And Bond gives in. But the way it was cut was really well done because it oh, showed yeah. that he cared. Like, he basically cared enough. He was like, yeah, fine. Like, we'll go back and get it for you, even if it's a risk. Um, yeah. I like that. And, and I like the fact that, yes, she made things more difficult for him, but he cared about her enough that he would take those ex- extra risks for that so you're character. It, it added to the love story, despite it maybe being a bit silly oh, in that. a sense. Aha, uh-huh, I think yeah. it made sense, because it was like Bond could have just carried on flying that plane and just taken it off and then thrown the bomb out the back and that would have been it. But like he saw her <laughs> out the window and he's like, right, okay, like, like I'll drop the... And that little exchange where he's like trying to explain that he's dropping the thing at the back and she's not getting it. And she's and he's yeah. like getting frustrated, you know, and it's like and but then that she gets in turn let Necro on the plane as well. And it just yeah. it, it yeah. caused all Necros, sorts of unnecessary you know, hassle. You know, Necros <laughs> I love Necros. I think I it's good a, time. Like I'm actually gonna name my first kid Necros. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm going yeah, to like say a super cool villain. Necros Murphy. Maybe more of a pet name. Yeah, or Necros Murphy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a good end to the film as well because things were getting kind of serious and then it was a quite a light-hearted ending. I mean, <laughs> it was nice to see Gogol making a quick cameo, but I like the way um, I like the way Kara sneaks into that wee room and the key ring, and then Bond appears and uh, you know it kind of, you then really saw the kind of ladies' man Bond coming out again, which which was good. The, the thing I liked, I thought, um, yeah, you, you have kind of sympathy for Kara how she's deceived in a real nasty manner by the guy she thinks is her like boyfriend uh what's his name Kozkov but he um was I gonna say that see the plot that's one of the things I mean it took me watching this film quite a few times to really properly grasp the plot the the idea that it's there's certain things you'll blink and you'll miss it like when Bond's in the cubicle early in the film Bratislava when she's been taken away he finds her cello case and finds it's not a cello inside it's a sniper rifle and it's got 
if you blink and you'll miss this man, the part of the gun he notices, I think the bullet hole from where he it's his yeah. gunshot, and then he notices he takes the bullets out, and I think he notices that they're blanks, and again it happens so quickly. And other things like just the the whole the idea is, of like the she would have, she wouldn't have known they were blanks. I don't know. Yeah, it's um. There's, I mean, all these things. It took me watching the film quite a few times to grasp. Well, even and the also whole... the naivety of the fact that she put her own fucking address in the cello case. Like she's got a weapon. <laughs> like she's obviously not like she's not built for that world. She's not. She's being used. You know, as a as a kind yeah. of a as an. A, yeah. You know, she's she's not prepared for that, and she's getting taken away by the KGB. They don't know who she is and all this kind yeah. of stuff. She left Bronda Bond a few breadcrumbs there by supplying her address, but I think as well, the whole um, exchange between the, the Muhajadeen and Kozkov's people, like the, when it turns out the opium's been exchanged for money, the money's going towards extra arms, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's quite a complex plot, but it's well done. It's not, it's not too over the top. Another thing you see before I finish as well, um, one one guy who we've not seen him since Love and Light Die, Felix Leiter was back. Uh, yeah, that was a nice surprise, a, actually. Totally, totally different actor. This this guy, John Terry. So that's about five films without Felix. But do you know a couple of things about that, right? Bond um, ends up meeting him because it's when he's escaping Tangier, and I think it's I think it's essentially police bonds running from and these two g- girls pull up in a car like, do you want to go to a party or something like that? And he's got the police run towards him, so he's got nowhere else to go. So he jumps in, and then he's going down the road with them in the convertible car. And he's like, where's the party? And one of them pulls a gun. And they wait until he's on the boat, until he finally realizes it's Felix Leiter. Like, that reminds me of that scene in Man with the Golden Gun, where Lieutenant Hitch yeah. takes Bond. On the boat, he's he's with him for about half an hour. He just won't say who he is. Like, why why couldn't those girls say to say to him in the car? You know, we, we, by the way, just I know, just pretend I'm pointing the gun at you. But I work for Felix, your old buddy, you for years. But it's like again, yeah. we talk like the director maybe going for style there. So fair yeah. enough, but it's kind of ridiculous. And I, can I just say also, so absolutely not. This is, yeah, this <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah another actor to play. Felix Leiter, John Terry, right? And um, now this guy was, I remember, it turned, I found out later he was in, he, he was in 24 and he, he was actually really good in that, but I find he's kind of, that's another actor, he's, it feels a bit kind of hammed up, he's like, you think this was a put-up job? It was, and it was such a brief scene, but it was like putting Felix Leiter in just, and the first Bond line that Bond says, it's Felix Leiter, it's like announcing to the audience, let the audience know that this is Felix Light, even though it's a new actor. And I just, it's like, it was almost as though they were getting Felix in the film just for the sake of it. He gets a bit better, I think, but he's not, he's maybe not like topping my, my yeah. feel. If you go through all the actors that play lighter, he's he's probably not topping my list, you know, he's, but he, it's amazing. But he comes back, you know, in the next film. It barely registered with me. I don't know if my attention wavered for that a few minutes, but I I actually forgot he was in this film. That's the uh, thing, man. It's it's quite it's quite a brief sequence, but and it's all it's all the style as well. It's like the fact they have to light it on a, a yacht with all these you know expensive surveillance. Because I think you see a yacht earlier in the film. I think it's when Kozkov and and Twitter having one of their secret meetings in that that house that kind of rooftop and you see a, a yacht in the distance it's, it's going for a bit of style there but 
I don't know. I don't know how that. It's not bad. Um, I don't know how I feel about that Felix Slater. Uh, yeah, it was all right. Just a, a kind of an extra, almost like not cameo, but a, a kind of a reference to earlier films. Yeah, it's good. Okay, I, I was th- looking at my notes there, and there was a couple of the the action scenes with. It was the silliness, I suppose, of the Moor era sort of creeped in a little, forgotten about. It was until I looked at my notes and there was a moment when Bond uh, drives through like a, a sort of cabin or a house type thing and is driving that across the snow. And I realised, oh yeah, yes. this, this film definitely wasn't back to the basics book at all times. There was moments of that camp still. But I yeah. think you're right what you said earlier. I think without those little moments, it would have maybe would have been a bit too dry. So they yeah. brought in some of the humour and it was a little more discreet. It wasn't obvious carry-on style one-liners. It was little things like the two of them sliding down a hill in the snow in a cello case. I was watching that going, this is a bit silly. I quite like the flash of the passports at the end. That was quite a nice payoff. Yeah, but it, I, I it was subtle, his, so it worked. I, I yeah. think his stern demeanour as well helped because, because he is so serious. When all this stuff, the absurd stuff happens to start happening around him, it seems like more out of place, but I was still enjoying it because it was a propulsive action sequence. It was quite fun, but um, it, it does seem more comical then because he is so serious and it doesn't seem like it fit. But yeah, I like the, it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to remember is that seeing the, the whole um, car chase sequence on the ice, Bond is taking on the police there, so you better hope he doesn't accidentally kill one. I don't think he was trying to, but you know, he fires the, the missile out, out of the Aston Martin at the back roadblock and you see them run out of the way, but you wonder what would happen if Bond maybe accidentally killed one of the cops. He's not fighting the, the enemy there, he's fighting the police for he's, a good he's got fight. A license. He's got a license to kill, he can kill anybody he wants, anyone. Oh, uh, surely. Look at how that license works. kill works. I mean, what Basically, are the... Yeah. <laughs> it's like that. I think that's the whole idea. It's, it's licensed to kill. You kill anyone on the mission. But basically, um, the, the thing that I liked about that whole sequence was, you know, like, it wasn't just the absurdity of him driving through the hut and all that. It was like, it was escalating. It was like... It was the laser at the start. When he had the side, the laser that came out of the side of yeah. the car and annihilated yeah. the other car, I thought that was where it, that's where it started, really. The gadgets were yeah. starting to show up. He had the, the bulletproof glass and things like that. But and he was like, was, made a comment was, about it. It was like the fact that the entire Soviet army was coming after them at that point. So you had tanks, you had yeah. like... Yeah. Um, yeah, it like had the snow. four guys on the back of a truck, like four guys with assault rifle, like yeah. all sort of shooting at them, sort uh-huh. of thing. It, it looked like they were in synchronization, sort of thing. Uh-huh. It was like, and like and the, the local police as well. So yeah, it was like Grand Theft Auto, like when you've got to like five stars, <laughs> like the tanks are coming. I mean, it, was like, it was like just total you know chaos, but like it was great. I like that. Like I like the fact that as absurd as what he was doing and like some of the things that that happened, the the it was an an insane situation where two people were being chased by an army of yeah. like civilian and like military personnel and like racing towards the border. I loved that as well when the guy was looking up up the hill and there was all these all these like things coming down the hill. Like so they're coming down on a flipping cello case and then you've got like <laughs> tanks and cars and like uh, things on snow tracks and guys with Kalashnikovs all shooting you know what I mean like just just another day at the office you know but it was great yeah. I like that the car had the self-destruct button, which I liked. You know, Q had, yeah. Q had sent him out, and the line Q says to him, which I wrote down because I knew it would be, uh, he said, 
it's just had a new coat of paint. Oh, well, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure that'll be fine then. <laughs> I just hollows it. It bonds behind the glass. I really like that. It's Yeah, I, I really love Q in this film. It's one of his Llewellyn's forgotten performances as Q. Is it? Who, who says that? that? Where's that? Well, that was the most 80s you know, film just... I've seen in the film, I think. Oh, oh, oh sorry, no, Steve, um, sorry, what was that, Steve? I missed that. The, the Ghetto Blaster. That one very subtle joke. It's the most oh, 80s yeah. Thing I think yeah. I've seen in a film. I, I, I thought that was a particularly good cue moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was great. I, yeah, because what I mean, see when people talk about Q's best scenes, they never mention anything about Living Daylights. And I thought he had some great scenes. The Ghetto Blaster, that, I, that was that was top stuff, I think. Yeah, I like that. Uh, Money Penny, quickly on her. Uh, obviously, we've got a new Money Penny. It was interesting seeing her being the one that's more flirty with him. He almost seemed to brush it off. Yeah. You know, yeah. Bite, bite yes. to listen to she her Barry Manilow, and he's just like, yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, she was, she was very nice. I mean, I think if, if I'd been invited around to listen to Barry Manilow, I probably would have said yes, you know? Are you pretend, uh, you would pretend that situation you're you're a huge Barry Manilow fan of Abbott, <laughs> and, you know, even though I, I don't really know any of his stuff. <laughs> also, yeah, watching her rather than sitting in a as, a as a sort of secretarial role buzzing him into uh m's office actually having her behind a computer doing some work and researching because it was her that did the research that uncovered uh cara and i think that's oh, the first time we've yeah. seen money penny do any work beyond pressing the button that lets bond into m's office that's so it was an interesting change of scenery for her yeah yeah, yeah. Better, better writing better use of characters yeah it, yeah have as much money for a budget. You can have the best actors in the world. You could have the best score. But if you've got a shit script and you don't use your characters well, then it's going to be rubbish at certain points. That's the main criticism I've had for all the Bond films so far is that there's been shoddy writing at certain points. Yeah. Like uh, I, like, I like as well how it's another instance how Moneypenny has kind of gone out of way to help Bond do something that's taken a few shortcuts because he's not meant to go to Bratislava, but she, because she knows him and likes him, she helps him out. Similar to how Q helps him do things under the radar in a couple of films, so it's that's good stuff. Aye. Okay. Anything else of note that anyone wants to talk about before we get to our rating? I just want to end on one, seeing as it's Easter Sunday, one final little Easter egg which jumped out at me in this film, which I'd noticed before. And it was on the plane just after Bond had been knocked out. It was him and Cora and Cora, her and Necro. <laughs> Um, the, the box that had the animal heart in it, the warning that was written on the side of it said, handle like eggs. And I thought, I've seen that somewhere before. And it was Thunderball. I went back through my notes because I'd written it down and it was written on the sides of a missile. This wow. Just that, that bizarre handle like eggs. And it just jumped out. I mean, I've been Googling it frantically to work out if it's, if it's a, like an in-joke with a cast or something like that, which I presume it is. But well, it's maybe just it's... bizarre that it jumped out at me again. It must be some kind of in-joke. I wonder if it's yeah. just as simple as, like, eggs will break. Yeah. Like, well, I, was just to say, I was just going to say, because um, you you guys have met my mum my and dad's Labrador, They a Labrador can carry an egg in their mouth. It's something like for a minute without the egg breaking because their mouths are so delicate. I just thought of that. <laughs> you talk about handling eggs. I did not know that. Well, we need to get we need to get your Labrador on MI6 staff to move <laughs> items around. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a bit of subtle googling suggests that actually it was something that was genuinely printed on sensitive military hardware. I'm going to look into this more, but I don't know. It just when I saw that, I thought I've seen that before, and it was Thunderbolt. It was bizarre. <laughs> there you go. Interesting Easter egg, Gordon. What's your interesting Easter egg? Oh. <laughs> 
It's, it's, uh, oh, let me. So, just like some, a little, a little nug out of the film that. Don't say anything else about um, urinary processes. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, you got me now. It's okay. You don't have to have a, an Easter egg. Was there anything of note you wanted to talk about before we go to the rating? Let's just fire on to the rating. Okay. Uh, Gordon, you want to go first on this one then? Sure, yeah. Um, I I really I've never shied away from the fact that I really enjoy Dalton as Bond, and he's a darker Bond. He's um, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's just certain scenes he just really nails. Like I don't I don't um the, the likes of that sniper scene. I don't know if any of the other Bond actors could have done that with the same level of aggression and uh and darkness. And yeah, I, I just think he's really, I just think he's very underrated. And because I think partly because the likes of this film is a bit kind of no frills in a lot of ways. What, one of the real themes that comes out to me is just that appearances can be deceptive. It's something we all probably talk about from time to time. And it's, and this, it was that all the switching sides all, all the deception by the the villains like Kozkov is pretended defect when he's not really defecting Pushkin's made out to be the enemy but he's really it turns out an ally and um Cameron Shah who you know the guy who's the leader of the Mujahideen is you know you think he's maybe gonna kill Bond and he, he's another good strong ally of Bond and yeah I think Dalton just um, really hones the bond from the books, and you just you buy into him. And there's still there's enough classic moments in this film to just make it really enjoyable. Skiing down the cello, I love the car chase. It's an Aston Martin again, but again, it's bringing Bond into the the late 1980s. Absolutely stunning soundtrack by Barry as well, and. You know, he, he embraces the kind of electro instruments a wee bit, but you know, it, the other thing as well, which really helps, I think, I love the reveal of Dalton as Bond. The wind's kind of blowing in his hair, turning round. It's just so cool. It's, it's even maybe cooler than any of the other introducing any of the other Bond acts, except for maybe Connery in the first one. But uh, and also, it, he's so good in the action sequences. He did a lot of his own stunts, grappling the top of that jeep. Is is so good. It, there's classic moments like he's still wears. Early in the film, he wears the Bond dinner jacket. He, um, you know, Barry uses the Bond theme right away, so immediately you're buying into him as Bond, and I thought he was great. Um, I mean, if any weaknesses are, I mean, I love that centers around the villains, really, because I think I find the the two sort of co-villains, uh, Kozkov and Whitaker, I just, I just find a bit kind of underwhelming. I know I don't sound like a hypocrite, because I don't want them to be too over the top, but they needed something to make them a bit more memorable. I feel Joe Don Baker was kind of miscast, and he was better cast as Jack Wade in a couple of the later films. He's kind of a bit, just a bit of a boon. His accent, he didn't, he just didn't come across well as a as an egocentric kind of war. He, he, I like the obsessiveness with war, but he was, uh, yeah, just I just feel it was kind of miscast. I think the I agree with Fran, uh, Fran <laughs> I agree with Fran that the the Afghan um, desert sequence at the end it went on a little too too much. I feel that the film started to lack a bit of tension and edginess, especially towards. The end, like the, there wasn't that sense of danger. I think Kozkov and and Twitter they came across kind of a bit 
too charming. I've got no issues with Cara as the you know leading female cat. I thought she was great, but I mean, I don't want to detract too much from it. It's, if we're going, I mean, rating wise, it was a good end. I thought um, I quite liked the little final battle with with Whitaker and Bond, and it shook things up a bit as well. How Kozkov was actually not even killed like most of the villains. You know, he's actually. It, I think I don't know if it was made out that um, Pushkin was going to have him shot because he says send him home a diplomatic bag, but he wasn't actually killed. He was just taken away. But um, if I'm I'm looking a three. I'm looking at a four. I think I'm going to go three point five in this film because I think it's. I feel there's something missing. I lack attention at times, and the the villains maybe could have been a bit more memorable. But I'm really liking Dalton as Bond. Okay, Fran, what was your rating for this? Well, I think my main complaint about Bond films so far was, um, as I've said numerous times, uh, bad writing at certain points. So I've and. We've actually seen we've seen bad writing um, for mainly kind of female characters. I would say over the over the course of the Bond films so far, we've seen some convoluted plots in terms of the like it's hard to follow what's going on. We've seen questionable musical choices uh, that take you completely out of what's going on. We've seen too much campy stuff, inappropriate humor. Um, you know, we've we've seen misuse or underuse of certain characters as well. Uh, like throughout all the ones we've seen, um, and we've seen a James Bond that has become all that had towards the end of Roger Moore become almost a caricature of Bond. Really, if we're being quite fair about it, we have to be clear on that. That as much as we're fond of Roger Moore, Roger Moore was a caricature of Bond, right? So, with all of those, all of those points, are I'm raising them because I feel like this film actually addressed. Most of the most of the points. Certainly, the music was one hundred percent fine. There was no bad music in this film. Uh, there was better uh, writing for female characters. There was better use of secondary characters like Money Penny. Um, there was uh, like apart from location hopping and some slight drag on certain points, the actual overall plot was was better. There was less campiness, but just enough. Uh, there was a more realistic overall plot in terms of it being about like the Soviet Union spies and drug deals and things like that. And Bond was more of a contract killer, like a, a professional, not contract killer, but a professional killer who had his mission had to go and do you know whatever. So because it had, because because if, everything to me, apart from a couple of tiny bits, right, had a logical reason for being in the film and the quality was high. I'm actually going to give it four and a half stars. Yep. Okay. I think because 0.5 of a star is what I would take off for for that for for, for where it wasn't quite what it should be. But I think it okay. was it was an extremely enjoyable film. Yep. Yep. Steve, I have been kind of toying with this one. It's absolutely basically I've been going between whether it's a four or whether I go up to a four point five because it was really enjoyable. And most of that comes, actually, I think, down to, to Dalton himself and his introduction. He was just the way he was introduced and then the character right the way through. I really enjoyed it as a breath of fresh air from Moore. And I mean that not to take anything away from Roger Moore, because we all know he was a great Bond, but that kind of refreshing change from the campness and the one-liners and the comedy. Um, I mean, that point, just at the very end of the pre-title sequence where the Jeep exploded, and I sat thinking, right, here comes the dodgy one-liner, and it didn't come. And I thought, brilliant. 
it's just so nice and refreshing to see Bond looking straight ahead and stoic rather than turning to camera and doing an aside or something like that. So I thought Dalton was absolutely fantastic. The use of characters, particularly as Fran mentioned, the use of, for example, Money Penny and the way the characters were written, I particularly enjoyed. I liked Bond's, I liked almost the, the love story side of things, Bond and Kara, and how it wasn't just a, it was more believable the way that she felt an attraction towards him because so often in Bond we're watching girls just turning their heads and immediately falling for Bond like some kind of walking aphrodisiac this felt more realistic and believable and taking her on a date through the theme park in Vienna it built up and it actually made a hell of a lot more sense um, so the way the characters were written and the way they used the characters was so much better in this one the action I also like I really like the airfield fight and the explosions and the way that was done, it may have dragged slightly. It went on for slightly too long. It's a bit like, I suppose, the underwater Thunderball scene. It looks cool, but it maybe dragged slightly. Um, so, I mean, I'm taking points off. Again, it's, it's minor, minor points. The location hopping kind of got me a bit in the middle, and I, I almost lost interest. It got me back, but it almost lost interest. And I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's slightly controversial, but I found the character of Kara slightly annoying, particularly towards the end. But I can kind of see how they did it and why they, why they did it. So, uh, going for it, I think I'm going to give it a straight four. Oh, final answer. Okay. Yep, final answer. So, we've got a three and a half, four, and a 4.5. And <laughs> so, I will uh, summarise where I'm going. Yeah, I know. I thoroughly enjoyed this film, as I said at the beginning of this podcast. We've spoke about why why we love Timothy Dalton's performance. It was fresh air. It was a serious take. I think I like that take. I've read one of the books. I could completely see this version of Fleming's character that I had read in the book. That was what I was I mean, obviously I've not I've not read the short story of the Living Daylights, but I could see what Ian Fleming was going for with the Bond character and I felt like Timothy Dalton understood that and that's what his sort of ambition for doing Bond was he wanted to be convinced this is the direction we're going and I think they nailed it and not only his performance but the writing was tailored to that style as well so the action uh, I loved the the sort of the the chase sequences the use of the gadgets they were I'd laugh out loud when that laser came out out of the car it was just it was just fun entertainment and it was a serious plot it had a fantastic love story that escalated as well naturally and there was no even on her majesties which is all about the love story in a sense it is all about the marriage uh, not the marriage but getting to that point where bond is about to accept a woman and and, and marry her that film was un- for me as i mentioned in the podcast undercut by the fact that he was happy to go and sleep with other women while he was still in the midst of being, uh, wooing uh, Tracy, I, I really bugged me that they did that. This film, no, none of that. No temptation, no um, no sleaziness at all. The smuttiness was completely gone from this film. It's the complete opposite of one of the Guy Guy Hamilton films or even most of the Roger Moore films. So I completely loved that and I bought into the, the love story. And I think I remember as a child never understanding why the female characters in some of the films didn't come back because I felt like they had given her so much depth and, and built up the relationship that I expected her to be in License to Kill. Uh, so that things like that, that goes a lot to, to the, the, the relationship built up. Obviously, we, we covered some of where it gets creepy. Fran, you brought up that, that interesting line. That was a little a little off. And there is moments where 
pacing uh, goes a little. It did drag a little. I did. I did get. I never really realised at the time, but actually, my attention did waver in the middle section of the film. I'm not sure at what point exactly, but the the, the hopping around is probably that the reason for it. So it isn't a perfect film by any means. And uh, yeah, I, I like the classiness of the film. Uh, you know, scenes with the orchestra and things like that. It did feel like. It felt like that these are the places Bond would be. Villains as well. I really liked the henchman. Uh, he was menacing. He had, you know, he was terrifying. He did have his own theme song, which was, which was funny in a sense as well. It was darkly funny. It was <laughs> it fitted in a, in a way. I quite liked it. It fit, fitted an 80s Bond film. This felt like it was. Uh, it really worked the, the late 80s style. Uh, and I did actually, I, I quite liked the difference in the two dual villains. That sort of coward kind of personality so different from the the boss of all bosses megalomaniac you know these were these were answerable these people were answerable to pushkin and things like that they were trying to get deals made and they weren't always in control and it was refreshing as well so you had the new bond that was refreshing and you had the the villains that worked well so to summarize i've been trying to decide where to land on this and for me this is a low five. I absolutely love this film. So uh, it's a, it's, a, it's well. I mean, to me, you can, you can still there's still variation on a five star. Like you can get the highest five is probably you where old and I. You could almost have like a four point six. We would still yeah, class five. It, to me, it's, it's it just gets to the five. I I can get where there's moments where it doesn't work, but all the points that it does work for me put it up above. The Spy Who Loved Me, which is the film that I've rated the highest so far, which is a 4.5. So, yeah. Yeah, that, this is what I'm loving. Just the not only the difference between our opinions, but the spectrum of Bond fans' perceptions or movie fans' perceptions of these films and these actors. And, you know, I'm, I'm really digging just the fact you guys really enjoy Dolan's performance. And yeah. I kind of feel... Like maybe it sounds harsh, I'm getting a 3.5, but I just find this was the first, this is actually the first Bond film where I feel for, a, no matter how many times I watch it, there's a, a fair proportion of it towards the end in Afghanistan I actually kind of switch off to momentarily. I couldn't really say that about any other Bond film, and I, I don't know if I can really properly pinpoint why it is, but if... Um, I, mean, I can agree on that, despite giving it the five. My attention did waver. Um, I was loving the first two thirds of the film, and there is a section I don't know where if it is the Afghanistan at what point and why it does that. But I did, I did sort of forget why we were doing this and what was the motivations of certain characters. There was some sort of something was lost in the edit that wasn't controlled completely correctly. But even despite that, um, I still I enjoyed so much else about it that you know that's why it got the five but it still wasn't a complete perfect film for me yeah and i'm just i'm so looking forward to license to kill because i've i know i've said time and time again it's a film that i'm so in love with and i just feel you i wonder if you you know what um you'll make of this but it's um the tension levels i talked about me a lot of tension some of the time in this film they get for me they get ramped right up when you get to license to kill it's um as Timothy Dalton said, on, 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 that's not his favourite of his two as well. See, I don't think the thing is that, yeah, that's right. I mean, he prefers Daylights, but and I, I've got nothing against Dalton's performance. I think he's great in Daylights, but um, License to Kill is just such a different film, which I'm sure you'll notice. And it's, for me, the excitement level, there's something that draws me to that film, which I just don't get out of Daylights. It is quite sad that he only got two. I feel like... 
Um, yeah. Needed, I thought, one to cement a legacy. Oh, yeah. But two films, obviously, highly regarded, I think, in the Bond franchises anyway, which I suppose gives them like a perfect record. But at the same time, I think he needed at least one more. There is a film missing between that yeah. Uh, between License to Kill and Goldeneye. I mean, do you think Pierce Brosnan would have? Because this film, it kind of was based around him being Bond. I mean, do, do you think he would have fitted in this? I feel as if it's a sort of story that would have worked for him as well. It felt like a precursor to Goldeneye. It felt like yeah. I, could, I could imagine it was the first third I could hear the sort of, there was a Brosnan voice. I could hear it. I could sense it. So, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Okay. I think. Yeah, we have, uh, hopefully, how long's that? An hour and a half, and we've also got an hour, a 35-minute <laughs> preamble. So Ooh. some editing, or it'll be a two-hour podcast, we'll see. But yeah, this has been a fantastic film, guys. And yeah, we're we're about to jump next week into another one, it sounds like. So yeah, this is, we're in a good era at this point in the Bond franchise. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like One thing we can say is that Bond Daft podcast is in a good place. The rest of the planet might be falling <laughs> pieces, but we're doing all right with the cast. Yeah. We've been <laughs> doing just... better the last few weeks. When I mean, terrible things are happening, but we've suddenly begun to sort of expedite our, our podcasts. So I'm, re- so I'm really enjoying this, and we're, we're starting it's to something get regular to do. Real- I'm just I'm I'm loving the the mix of opinions and the the uh, just this voyage of discovery from going right back to Doctor No, and we're almost approaching our first birthday. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. It's 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 nuts actually. Like how long we've been doing this for now? But I mean, like Steve, God, when was it we started the? Because we did the. Was it solo a Star Wars story? When was that? That must have been like 2018. Uh, yeah, 2018. Yeah. So, I mean, time flies. Like, you know, we're going to be doing this. We're going to be looking at it going, my God, it's 2025. We've done a set of series of different franchises and we're 40 years old now. Think about that. Well, uh, we'll need to start thinking. I think it's going to get to the end. It's a lot quicker than I thought. So we'll need to start thinking what the next project after Bond is. But uh, on that, uh, I think we are good to end this. We will be back. The Bond Aft podcast will return for License to Kill. Thank you guys for joining me once again remotely due to Thank COVID-19. And... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I have to end on that. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. See ya.